All right, good morning. I appreciate Sam's leadership on how we should think and be thoughtful for our civil leadership, how we should be praying for them. Um, it's helpful for me because as we reopen society, let me tell you, our temptation is not going to be to think kindly or thoughtfully or be praying for our civil leadership. It's going to be to criticize our civil leadership. Whether you're on Team Blue or Team Red or you're convinced you're in the middle somewhere, listen, you're going to be tempted to think that they are doing it all wrong and if you were in their shoes, you'd be doing a much better job. And what I love about this timely leadership from Sam is that it's going to fall directly in line with how Paul is going to lead us today in the Bible. So if you have a Bible or a device, I want you to turn to Philippians 2, and we're going to see Paul address this very thing in, in you and in me, and at the same time show us Christ incredibly clear. So the gospel is going to be before us on great display. Philippians 2, we're going to go in verse 12, and we're just going to read for a little bit. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. All right, so... It's talking about grumbling and disputing a little bit, and I think that doing everything without grumbling and disputing might be, in my opinion, one of the most difficult imperatives in the entire Bible for me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I can't think of a more inconvenient imperative in the whole Bible. And I know I sound like I'm grumbling right now. You see how quick I can move into it. It's easy for me. I mean, honestly, how can God expect us to, to take the blows, the personal injustices, to take the hits and the, the inconveniences and the sufferings while not grumbling. I mean, how, how are we expected to be joyful in all circumstances? It seems like to me that we should all get like an allowance of tokens that we can grumble if we really, really need to grumble in that moment. But you see, I'm doing it right now. That's what grumbling sounds like. And it's because it's so easy for me to do. I can, I can use just about any moment to shift gears and fall into grumbling. I remember when they took carne asada off the Chipotle menu. I remember where I was. I remember what day it was. I'm standing in line, and I can look through the little plexiglass shield and see that there is no carne asada. And I had a little mini meltdown, right? I, I'm arguing, and I'm, I'm venting, and I'm grumbling with the teenager behind the counter on how Chipotle must be out of their minds and scared of making money if they are gonna take the best protein they've ever had out of their menu, right? Or the internet, or when my internet slows down and something needs to happen and I get the buffering symbol that spins until Jesus is gonna come back, right? It's never gonna quit buffering. Never. I come out of the office and I am up, I'm mad. I'm gonna let the whole world know how internet companies should be run is if I know the first thing about how an internet company should be run. Or my weather app and how it lies to me every day. I could find a reason to complain and grumble about my government, 
my inbox, my, my body, my sleep, my phone charger, I can pick anything. And I can shift gears and move into it, move out of it without even picking up and without even noticing that I just got done grumbling. I, I, can, I can praise God in one moment and then grumble about something I'm not real excited that God let happen in another. And I can do it without even paying attention and seeing that I just did it. And here's the thing, I don't even call it grumbling when this happens. I Christianize it. Maybe you do this too. I call it just being honest, right? Or sharing a concern or venting, right? Which we're allowed to do. I think it's much more than that. I think I'm grumbling. I know it when I'm doing it. You do too. Let's face it. 73 days ago, our world was shut down, right? And instantly, on that day, March 12th, or give or take a couple days, we all instantly became experts, right? We were all, all of a sudden, the most intuitive and innovative person in the room who knew how things really should be done, right? Why are they doing it this way? Why are they shutting everything down like this? If I was them, I would do this. I'm mad that they're doing this. I'm mad that they're not doing that. We became a nation of grumblers. If ever there was a spike in the way that we complained as people, it's been in the last three months. You see, we know best. That's what we, we think in our head. And those who disagree with us, they are oppressively in the way, and we need to let the world know about it, so we're gonna protest. I mean, you've noticed there's been team freedom and team lockdown. And now we've become a nation and even a church that's not stating the obvious about a pandemic or about a stock market, but now we're lobbing complaints and we're grumbling about the other team and how they should be doing what we want them to do. Friends, listen, it's not really injustice in general that Paul is speaking to right now. He's speaking to what happens to us when injustice lands on us personally, whenever we have an unbalanced criticism of small things, or whenever we lodge complaints on stuff that we really don't even see reality on or know what's going on. It's not fighting injustice as it affects other people, like orphans or widows or the impoverished. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not even talking about fighting broken systems that break people, right? Those are actually Christ-shaped. Those are missional things that we can do when we fight that kind of injustice. Grumbling is what happens whenever we are upset because we want things for our sake. So we have an unbalanced criticism, and it's typically over smaller things. That's what Paul has in mind here, is a selfish complaining. Impatience towards the way other people are doing things differently than we would. And grumbling shows up. And when our, our desires, which we all have, develop into demands. And when those demands aren't met, we lodge a protest. And when we protest, we can do that out loud. We can do it when we're alone. We can do it in our heart and it never come out of our mouths. But it's all grumbling. It's all disputing. Disputing with people, disputing with God. Because here's the thing. When we protest, we think it's reasonable first. But we also think that we're protesting other people or uh, systems, that it's man and in this moment that's inconveniencing us and that needs to be changed. Um, for instance, I might complain about the potholes on I-40, but that's just a road. Or I might get mad at the pace of society reopening, but that's a broken protocol and a broken system. But I'm not throwing rocks at those inanimate things or other people. What I'm really doing is I'm throwing rocks at the Lord. I'm mad at Him. I'm saying He's doing it all wrong. He's not that smart, not that wise after all, not that caring. And if 
God really knew what he was doing. He would do things the way I want them to be done. But because he's not, I'm going to grumble about it. You see, grumbling states that God is not sovereign. <laughs> and, and if he is sovereign, he doesn't really care. He's not very thoughtful, right? Some of you are single or poor or tired or lonely or hurting or sad or depressed. And you say in yourself that if God was better than he is right now, he would change your script. He would change the way that you were having to endure this life. I'll tell you a passage that's been very helpful for me in all of this, and I'll get back to this passage here in a few minutes. But in Romans 11, 11 Paul tells the Roman church, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him. Listen, there is not a single situation or circumstance that God does not oversee and develop, nurture, for his ultimate glory and for your ultimate good. Not a single one. And, you're, and by the way, as we've been saying all year, your ultimate good and his ultimate glory, they're found in the same place. They're connected. They're not detached, right? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Your deepest good will always be found where his deepest glory is and vice versa. But grumbling says the opposite. Grumbling says, oh, no, no, no. My greatest good, my deepest good, it's not where God is most glorified. In fact, where God is most glorified might be a place of grumbling for me. It might mean I don't get what I want. That's what our hearts tell us. You see, grumbling, as bad of a look as it is for us, it's honest. As bad as it looks, as bad as it sounds, it's honest. It displays what we really think about God. It, it, it tells our deepest theology, not the theology we say we believe, not the theology that we check down the line on a, on a church belief statement, but what we really, really believe. It, it reveals where we really put our trust. Grumbling, as ugly as it is, is honest about where our joy is really found. As we've been saying, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, that's not my quote, that's C.S. Lewis. But grumbling is a high theological statement. And where did we pick this up, by the way? This knack for grumbling and complaining and whining and disputing. Picked it up when we were born. It's actually part of our fallen nature. We get it from Adam and we get it from Eve. You see, they did not like how God arranged their trees, how they could have of one and not of the other. They were upset about that. And then they were convinced by a serpent who slithered up and told them that that was an injustice to them, that God was unjust, maybe even evil. And likewise, we don't like the way God has arranged our trees either, do we? And so we listen to voices that are not the Lord, and we are convinced that God is unjust, that it's an injustice to us. You see, Adam and Eve, they saw God as oppressive, that he was in the way, that maybe he shouldn't be God. And they had these desires, and those desires evolved into demands, and there was a silent protest of the heart, and then we have the fall. And really, we're no different. We're really no different. In fact, later on, Adam would further grumble and complain and dispute with God on how that sin wasn't even his fault. God, it's not me. It's actually the woman. And let's face it, you gave the woman to me, so really the blame is at your feet. It's your fault. That's what grumbling does. And Adam's 
grumbly, unthankful heart. He misrepresents reality. And he misrepresents God. And we can do the same. God, it's your fault that I'm suffering. God, it's your fault. You could have changed this situation. You could have wrote this script any way you wanted, but you chose to do it this way. Now, most likely because of the context of this chapter and the context of really this letter to the Philippian church, this grumbling and the, this disputing that Paul is discussing is most likely between people, right? It's more of a, a horizontal or a lateral grumbling and disputing where we protest that God is not wise and he's not thoughtful and how he puts us together and how he um, has us growing side by side with each other. But we're going to zoom out and look at the basic grumbling heart. We're going to look at the basic urge that we have to disapprove and accuse God for what he is allowing to happen in our lives. And this is the big question I have for you, and this is what I want you to be thinking about. Where are you today most grumbly? Where are you most grumpy in your heart, complaining? disputing? Or what are you least thankful for? That would be the reverse way of asking pretty much the same question. What are you least thankful for? Because here's my deepest warning to you. Grumbling is not safe. It's not safe. It's not a minor league sin in an ocean of sins, right? It's not something that we can tolerate and still be okay. It is a full and firm, a full-throated accusation of God himself. It's a major sin. It's a major problem. It's saying that if we were God, we would do something different because he is not wise. So we are not just criticizing his design. We're also criticizing his motivations. It's a full accusation. Listen, I can't wait for college football to come back. I mean, I can't wait every year, to be honest with you. But this year, I really can't wait for college football to come back. But it's not going to take into the first quarter of the first game for me to criticize the quarterback and have something to say about decisions that the coach is making. But at the same time, I couldn't hit a minivan from 30 feet away with a football or make a good decision in right there on the side of the field. I couldn't do any of that. But this is what grumbling does. A grumpy heart, it, it turns us into armchair quarterbacks where we don't see reality like we should see reality. Friends, I'll be honest, I'm not sure this passage could come at a better time for us as a church, capital C. It just feels so much like the church right now is venting. We're stating the obvious. We're sharing a concern. But we're all clearing our throat right now at what we think should be happening. And that's because we've been personally affected in the last 73 plus days. We've all been hit, right? Some of us deeply. Some of us have been altered on some big ticket items when it comes to retirement or family members lost. If you could have rewritten the script for the last three months, it'd be different, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? If you could rewrite how things would have gone in March, April, and even May, you would write it different than it has gone down. And I would too. I would too. I would have preferred a different script. I had some goals. I had some things I wanted to have happen. But at the place where I'm willing to let the world know that I would have rewritten my script and done better than the Lord. I've, at that moment, demoted God and promoted myself. This is what Adam did in the garden. I want you to remember, your grumbling is a high theological statement that actually is atheistic when you think about it. In its deepest essence, it says there is no good God. There is no good God. And therefore, when we grumble, we sound just like the world, don't we? We join a a chorus of people who don't love Jesus, which is 
why Paul is saying in this passage that when we live free of a grumbling, complaining, disputing heart, when we live free of that, we, we have contrast with the background. We shine like brilliant lights in a sea of darkness. And you've seen this, haven't you? I mean, you've been in moments, I know you have, where you've seen pressure applied to people where some grumble and they complain, but the same pressure applied to different people, it kind of squeezes them, but it extracts a worship, right? A joy, a smile on their face, a satisfaction in the Lord in that moment above all things. I see it. It's the shape of Jesus that I'm drawn to. That's what fascinates me. That's what gets my attention, and it causes me to fix my attention on people like that. I'm looking at the shape of Christ when I see that. That's why it stands out. We see Jesus clearly. I mean, look at Paul. He wrote this while he was imprisoned. I mean, he might have had chains on him as he is writing this letter. I don't know if Paul grumbled in all of his years of being in prison. I'm sure he probably did. But had I been in the same room with him and I heard him grumble, I'm sure I would have thought, well, all right, I'll give him that, right? I mean, he, he, he's got some grumpy tokens he can spend every now and then. I wouldn't fault him for that. But something happened where these guards and these officials were hearing the gospel, but they were also seeing the fruit of the gospel true in Paul's life. I mean, he stood out. He stood out like a light among a dark, cavernous background. He had contrast. He's not doing what other prisoners were doing. And it got everybody's attention. So listen, as we navigate how to interact with this reopening as a society and as a church, we're going to have to wrestle with some things. How to mask or not mask. <laughs> reopening protocols. There's going to be heavy inconveniences for the next foreseeable future. And we might think too that we are entitled as a church to clear our throat a little bit and state the obvious and grumble and complain. You might genuinely feel like something wrong or unfair is happening to you, right? Your circumstances might stink, but as soon as you complain about what God is or is not doing, or how he is or is not good, or is or is not in control, you sound just like the world. You have zero contrast. You don't show like a light in any kind of darkness. You just blend in with the darkness. You need to know that when we accuse God, we cannot lead others to see Christ or his gospel accurately. You cannot praise God and accuse God at the same time. It's impossible. It's impossible. This is why I keep saying grumbling is not safe. It, it, grumbling is contagious, too. You've seen this as well. Go ahead and test me in it. Go ahead and grumble out loud in the next couple days about something that really ticks you off and see how quickly you can get yourself a little tribe, right? Complain about masks. Complain about how tired you are of Zoom meetings. Go ahead and do something like that, and people will go, yeah, yeah, me too. I'm tired of that, too. People will, it's like a pheromone we emit or something. So it's anti-gospel, it accuses God, and it's wildly contagious. It is not safe. I recently caught myself in the garage a few days ago grumbling about something that ticked me off. I mean grumbling, capital G grumbling. I mean, I let it fly, right? <laughs> I had a little moment. I even had a couple passages in, in the Bible I felt like backed me up that I was able to kind of lob out there. And my wife, you know, she reminded me of what I was looking like and sounding like in that moment. And I, but I felt a huge personal injustice. It drew this protest out of me. And later on, I felt the Lord impress 
a, a question on me, really. Luke, am I still in control and good, or have you already moved on from that? Have you moved on from that fact, which was convicting? It's convicting for me. Look at Isaiah 55, which is a passage for grumblers, by the way. Isaiah 55 is a, is a verse for complainers, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sure, it makes sense, because we could have never dreamed of the gospel, could we? We could have never come up with that. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But when we grumble, we say not only are our thoughts his thoughts, our thoughts are better than his thoughts. So how do we ungrumble? How do we unwind this tendency and this pattern we all have to grumble and complain and whine? and How do we do this? He actually gives us the answer to this in the same passage, which is very helpful. He says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and then he says we hold fast. To Christ. Now, working outwards from a place of fear and trembling just means working outwards from a place of reverence or awe, where we see God's gravity and his weight, and we recognize how heavy he is. It's reverence and awe. That's what it means. We're not working for our salvation. We're working out our salvation, and that's a very big difference. I mean, just as a picture, on June 19th, I celebrate my 21st wedding anniversary with my bride, and that is a celebration of a ceremony where we gave vows to each other, and when we gave those vows, we immediately, from that moment onward, all the way to today, have started working out our vows, right? We were working out what happened on that wedding ceremony, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. I pledge my faithfulness to you. That's what we said to each other. And we took that seriously. With reverence and with awe, we handle those vows. And we work, the benefit of that ceremony works itself outward for the years to come. Right? That's what it means. Just like that. Similarly, we are working outwards from the benefit that we gain from the gospel. Right? The gospel is a very real thing that happens in God's kids. And we start working out the benefits and the realities of that for the rest of our life. I mean, think of the gospel in terms of this, as we look at the different angles of the gospel this year, right? Think of it as God making vows to you and to me. It's a different covenant than a marriage covenant, but it has a lot of similarities. Where God says, I pledge you my faithfulness in, in weakness and in strength and sickness and in health. Even when you misbehave, even when you have a bad day, even when you regress, even when you run from me, even when you are unfaithful, I pledge my faithfulness to you. Those are God's vows in the gospel. And those vows are not symbolized in the trading of rings like we have in a, in a wedding ceremony, but by a bloody cross and an empty tomb. That's the vow that he is making. You see, God's demands on you and me are very heavy, 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 heavy demands. But he also has a heavy, heavy answer for those demands. He has the demands, and then he meets them at the same time, right? I mean, friends, we're just not without blemish, are we? In, in this world that we live in, in this life that we live, we're not without blemish, but that is what he requires. He has high demands. We're not innocent or blameless, but that's what God requires because his demands are high. We're not without rebellion, but that is what he requires because his demands are high. 
we're not without um, unrighteousness, but he requires righteousness. He has a high demand. You see, God has great demands, but then he meets those demands in himself. In Christ, he met his own demands. He pays his own penalty. That's the beauty of these vows. You see, God is mindful for you and me at, in an excruciating detail in a very passionate level. And he never breaks his vows. Ever breaks his vows. All of this holds so much weight and glory and reverence that it provokes us to a place of worship where we work out the details and we work out the, what it looks like to live in the light of such a great set of vows. So that's what it means to work out our salvation with this trembling gravity of what God has done for us in the gospel. You see, Jesus is very good news for grumblers like me who just don't really always approve of the script that God has written. It's good news. God is faithful to grumblers. And this is noteworthy because Jesus, who sealed our gospel and who is the very centerpiece of our good news back and forth, he didn't grumble a single time. Not once. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. It's a fascinating passage. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's fascinating. I'd have had my mouth open the whole time if I was God. If I'd have done things my way, I would have let people know how rude they were <laughs> in, the whole, in the whole crucifixion. I would have let people know that they're going down. I would have talked trash the whole time. He opened not his mouth. You see, it's Jesus who is ultimately without blemish, who is ultimately blameless, who is ultimately innocent in the midst of a crooked and bent and dark generation where he stood out brilliantly as a light in the darkness. That's Christ. He didn't open his mouth. Friends, this is good news because we're not just free from the penalty of grumbling. We are free from the power of being trapped inside of our grumbling and complaining. We're not trapped or slaved anymore in any of that. But how does somebody grow past grumbling? How do we get beyond complaining? Is this something that we do? Is this something that God does in us? Is it both? It's a little difficult. That's why Paul gives us this cool statement in the same passage where he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that sounds maybe a little bit odd at your first pass. It sounds like Paul is saying, work out whatever God is working out in you, right? Like, hey, stop grumbling while God helps you not grumble anymore. It, it kind of sounds like we're both doing it. I mean, who's doing this? Who gets the credit for this kind of growth? Does God do it or do I do it? It's important to know that Christian life is more of a blend. It's a mixture of us striving and working and reaching and acting and then also trusting that God is the one that's ultimately doing the change in us. And they're both happening at the same time. We don't go back and forth between we work and then God works. It's not a binary light switch. It's more like colors being mixed on top of each other. They are both true, and they are both true at the very same time. The mature Christian who is moving beyond grumbling is working hard to not grumble anymore. Striving, straining, it's exhausting work right? I'm telling you from one grumbler to the next, it's hard work. But the maturing Christian also knows that God is the one that is putting the will in me to even want to not grumble anymore. It's giving me 
the ability to even spot when I am grumbling, to give me the hope and the endurance to walk a life without grumbling. The Lord is effectively doing this in me. He's changing me as I work hard to change. See, because of the fall, you and I, we're not even able really to see in our natural minds and in our natural hearts, unregenerated, we're not able to even see what is good and pleasing to God. We can't even really recognize it. And when we do happen to see it, we don't choose it. And if we were happen to see and choose it, we can't carry it out. Not in our natural place. Not with an unregenerated heart. This is how God finds us. I mean, we could look behaved. We can look Christian. We can change in small things. We can change our diet. We can not smoke anymore. We can stop cussing. We can do whatever. But listen, can't change in the ways that really matter. Not, not where there's a differentiation between life and death. We can't do that. Not without the Lord. Not without Him coming in with His Holy Spirit and literally changing us. When God finds us, He recreates a new will in us where we can finally see, we can finally choose, and we can finally carry out. That's the work of God in us. That's how grace operates in us. God working in us, giving us favor totally despite us. We can finally see, finally choose, finally execute. This is what it means when he says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will, that means to choose, to desire, to hunger for, and to work, that means to act, to execute, to stretch, to strive, for what? For his good pleasure, which again is where you will find your deepest good, satisfaction, and contentment. He places this in us. This is important. This is an important theological fact because I think some of us have grown to see God's activity is waiting upon and reliant upon our activity. So if we take a break, God takes a step back, right? Isn't that how it feels? Which is probably why God feels very distant because you haven't been working very hard, right? You've stopped straining and stopped striving. So you have this image of God where he is waiting on you and he is incapacitated. He is unable to change you because you are lazy and you don't want to change yourself. Here's a truth you need to know. God's work in you is effective and it's reliable. We might regress. He does not regress. We might run away from God. He does not run away from us. He's always at work in us. He never takes a break. He never releases. He never pushes us away. We cannot stop his work. We can't delay his work. We can't deflect his effective work in us. God never fails to achieve his purpose in us. He gets what he wants. He hits what he aims at. These are true statements about God. But, truth number two, we also work. We do things, right? We stretch and we strive. We exert ourselves. Growing is hard work. It's consistent, sustained, hard, difficult effort. Even in our passage today, we see some imperatives. An imperative is just a statement of what we do. We see some imperatives. We see obey, work out, do, hold fast, rejoice. And that's not it. I mean, the Bible's full of them, right? The New Testament is full of imperatives of what we do. Forgive, reconcile, don't forsake meeting together, repent, witness, give, all of these things, right? So grace, God's work in you, it doesn't relax your stretching and your working and your striving. It synchronizes it. It makes it, makes it make sense. Obedience is a reality for us because of God's grace working in us. Friends, listen. You change because of hard work. 
but you work hard because God works in you. That's what he's saying right here. And he doesn't just say it here. He tells the Colossian church in chapter 129, for this I toil, which is Paul stretching and striving and reaching and working. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, that's God's energy, that God powerfully works within me. So let's apply this, as we start to land the plane, let's apply this to grumbling and complaining, you and me, right? How do we handle this the next time we catch it just rolling out of our mouth? How we're mad at the other team for doing things radically different than we would, or how we're mad that this is happening to us or that that happened to us. When we start to see it and we catch ourselves in the midst of a complaint and a protest, how do we, how do we handle this? The first thing is you're going to need to be very honest. What is it that you're demanding? What is it that you really want? God is going to show you something about yourself in the midst of that. If you have eyes to see it, what do you feel like is being taken from you? That's the best question I usually ask myself. What is it that I truly hunger for in that moment that has now become a demand? Do I demand to be cared for? Unalone? Safe? Comfortable? Heard? Because listen, your problem is not out there. Your problem is in here. There's something that you are convinced will satisfy you in that moment far more than Christ himself will satisfy you in that moment. And now listen, as we've already seen, there is nothing wrong with feeling unalone or being heard or being safe. But when those hungers and desires, when they become demands that build accusations against God, that's grumbling. That's something totally different. We've elevated our desires too high in that moment. So what is it that we're demanding, right? What do we feel like is being stolen from us? That's the first thing. And that's going to take some work. This is where we toil. This is where we strive. You're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to do something like journal. You're going to have to maybe confess it in a DNA group. You're going to have to work to even spot. And then you're going to have to ask the Lord to show you, where is it that I'm really hungry? Like, what is it that I'm really reaching for? It takes work. The second is hold fast to Christ, which is what Paul is saying in this passage. And, and let me just tell you, holding fast to Jesus is more than just thinking about Jesus, right? To hold fast means to fix attention, to invest upon, right? That's what hold fast means. How does the life, death, and life of Jesus, how does the scripture inform or contradict where your desires are becoming demands? Where does God speak to your heart in other ways, right? What passage helps you the most? As I already said, my favorite one is in Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. For some reason, that resets me quicker than other passages. I could probably have a dozen or two or three other dozen passages that will help me. That one helps me fast, and so I keep that in my holster. And when I catch myself in the middle of being grumpy, because let's face it, carne asada is not coming back, folks. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to get the internet that I really hunger for. So when I catch myself ripping and ranting around the house, when I catch myself in the midst of it, that passage sets my heart quicker. It just does. Which one is it for you? If you don't know, you should be about the business of collecting a few scriptures, which is work. It's toil. It's straining. It's striving. Do you see how they cooperate? Okay. Third thing, fight it out in prayer. Let God know how you feel about being robbed and whatever you feel like you're being robbed in. Listen, Grumbling is not prayer. It's not. Speaking out loud is not prayer. Complaining is not a strategy. Those are things, but they are not prayer. Prayer is where you carry it to the Lord and you address him. And you say, I am mad that you did this to me. 
I am mad that this is not happening for me. Let God know where you feel ripped off. And then ask him for eyes to see what is really reality. Ask him for trust where you don't really have trust. Ask him to give your heart more size to hunger for him above all things. Pray. And this converts our grumbling into something that looks a little bit more like worship than just ranting out loud. You know, I imagine a Paul who had days where grumbling was right on his lips. I, I can imagine Paul was not perfect, mature, but not perfect. So I imagine him starting sentences that were grumbly, but pivoting in the middle of them, noticing what was going on and then stopping and rerouting what was coming out of his mouth. And, and that's what I want to do. That's, that's what I hope for as, as I move forward, especially through a season like this. Not so that I can say, look what a great guy I am, but so that I can say, look what a great God we have. Look what an incredible Lord that we have. This is why Paul tells the Thessalonian church in chapter 5, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, right there. Let's just be honest. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do you think that came naturally? Do you think that he... That, that's not just a statement for all of us for moments where everything looks like it's working out awesome. And everything is doing exactly what we would want it to do. Our script is coming alive before our eyes. I, I would imagine giving thanks in all circumstances probably began with a grumble. A grumble and a complaint and a dispute was likely the genesis. And as we see it, and as we notice what our, our heart wants, and we repent, and we land in prayer, as we do this, it evolves and turns into a moment of thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. Instead of grumbling in all circumstances. And this is the will of God for you and for me in Christ Jesus. Friends, listen, there's going to be a day, and I can't wait for it, where we will never hear grumbling again, not off our lips or anybody else's. We won't have a team freedom and a team lockdown. We won't have team red and team blue. We won't have any of that. You'll never even be tempted to complain because everything that your heart has really wanted is before you, and you are content and satisfied as much as you possibly can be. Until that day, we have the Holy Spirit changing us into the living picture of Christ as we become more and more like him as the days go on. And until that day, we have God giving us the will to do according to his good pleasure. Until that day, we work and we work hard. We stretch with all of our might. We exhaust ourselves and, and we trust that God is working hard in us, that God is doing in us as we do. Until that day, we hold fast to the one who has made vows to us, beautiful ones, in which he will never break. We hold fast to Christ. So let me pray for my grumbling heart and for your grumbling heart as we start to navigate this reopening process. It will be complicated, and we're going to need a lot of grace for each other, and we need to revisit how good and how glorious God is in the midst of all of this so we could be thankful in all circumstances. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so good and so kind to us as people that you've given us yourself. You had high demands because you are a, a good God, that you are righteous, and yet you met your own demands. You've given us mercy, you've given us grace. So Father, we're thankful for your gospel. 
We're, we're, we're thankful that we have you working in us, that we're not left alone to figure out how to stop grumbling. We're not left alone to figure out how to stop complaining, but you are doing this work in us and you always achieve what you want to achieve. You never miss your targets. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the will to not be a church of complainers, but you would give us the will to thank you in all circumstances instead. And not just for our good, but for your glory, that we might stand out like lights in the, in the just giant expanse of darkness that we live in right now. That there would be contrast between us and everyone who does not know you. Lord, that even the way that we, we speak out loud and state the obvious would be a glory and a ministry and a witness. That for us, when we state the obvious, it's just not all the things that we feel ripped off about. When we state the obvious, we state the obvious of your gospel. And Lord, that we would be a church that would work out with fear and trembling what you have done in us. That we would celebrate the beautiful vows you've given us, Father. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so very good and kind and thoughtful and gentle to us. And it's in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we celebrate. It's in your name that we work and strive. And it's in your name that we rest. Amen. I love you. Be attentive this week for new details and announcements regarding phase two for our church. But I love you. Have a great weekend and we will talk to you soon.